most of the history period that we call the age of the early church fathers. And what we were doing was, is we, and it's been a while here because I think it's been probably about five weeks or so, I can't remember, because power's built in, maybe four weeks, since we went through this. But we stopped at, uh, after Augustus, and we said, before we move on in our timeline, let's look back at the church fathers who we looked at, and let's look at some of the teachings that they had on certain subjects. We already talked about many important subjects, talked about what their view of scripture was, the teaching of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, uh, the teaching about grace, and uh, so many other things. But we wanted to look at other specifics that we hadn't talked about. Is everything okay up there on the computer there? Okay, why don't I close that screen here, Brad? Thank you. Well, what we want to do is look at other things that we didn't talk about. And last time we looked at the subject of abortion, and we looked a little bit at the issue of contraception as well, what church fathers were saying about it, and then sodomy. We looked at what they said about sodomy. These are important subjects. You know, when you think about the issue of abortion or you think about uh, sodomy, in our own day, we have people who claim to be Christians who think that they can have a different view than we do on these issues. And in fact, you can't. Abortion is clearly murder. Sodomy is clearly a sin against God. And that's clear in scripture, but also throughout church history until the 1900s, Christians were always united on these issues. And so oftentimes when people like Keith, for example, gets accused of being in a cult and he's speaking against a lot of these perversions in our day, it's actually those who claim to be Christians who have wrong views on these issues, they are actually the ones who are in a cult, if they are part of a group who think it's okay to have an abortion and think it's okay for people who claim to be married to be two men and two women and so forth. So we looked at these things last time. I'm not going to have a PowerPoint today because I said it's just going to be the same thing over and over, clicking on the pictures, and plus I'm having some problems with that program. But let's just look here at... The next subject we'll talk about, and that is the issue of modesty. Now, when we talk about uh, public modesty, meaning how we should present ourselves before others, um, we're, we're talking about, you can talk about a whole range of different things. Really being modest, it's, um, you could be modest in your attitude, you know, you could be modest in many different areas in your life. We're talking here about clothing in particular. The question is, is when we're out in public, when we're before others, how should we uh, present ourselves? And the church fathers were really clear about these issues as well. And I'm just going to read to you some of the quotes uh, of them so you can see what they said about this. Let's start again with Clement of Alexandria. We talked a lot about him already. And he said this. This is about 195. By no manner of means are women to be allowed to uncover and exhibit any part of their person. Otherwise, both may fall. The men by being excited to look, the women by drawing to themselves the eyes of the men. So, that's very clear, and I think a lot of this is a lot of common sense, but again, we have to look through this. This is important because it's very clear that God designed men and women in a certain way. And he designed them to enjoy their relationship in marriage. But outside of that, uh, that's not to be the case. It's, it's a 
normal. And so in public, women are to dress in a proper way. Otherwise, they may cause others to stumble. And so the men who lust after them are sinning, and they are also sinning by causing others to do that. Now, at times, you may have heard this before, and I've, I've heard this, I think, more than once. When someone's been told to cover themselves up more because they may cause others to sin, have you ever heard a woman respond by saying, well, if they're looking at me in that way, that's their problem, not mine. I think we've all probably heard that. Well, actually, that's a very unbiblical view. It's a secular view. It's a feminist view that says, look, I can basically be naked, but if someone is looking at me that way, that's their problem, not mine. Actually, that's not the way God designed it. Uh, God designed men a certain way, women a certain way, and because of that, because of the fall, and because of God's laws concerning marriage and the unmarried and so forth, they are to be covered. So that's really clear. Now, let me give you another quote from Clement. Much more must we keep pure from shameful deeds. On the one hand, we must keep from exhibiting and exposing parts of the body that we should not. And on the other hand, we must keep from looking at what is forbidden. So, very clear, we're not to uh, look at those things that would be wrong. Now, let me just kind of clarify what I mean. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 5 what Jesus said? He said, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And really that's linked to the seventh commandment. One way you can commit adultery is by lusting after someone you're not, you know, that you're not married to. And when you go down in the passage, Jesus talks about if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not actually meaning tear out your eyes and cut off your hands, but he's saying you have to war, you have to fight to keep yourself from these things. And then as he goes on, he talks about how the judgment of God that falls on people that don't repent is really in hell. And so when we, even as Christians, if we're tempted to these things, we say, well, th these are sins that take people to hell. We need to keep ourselves from those things. And so this is a really serious issue. So one can sin by looking in a way they shouldn't, and again, another can sin by drawing that uh, attention to themselves. Now, I also wanted to mention some people will have a confusion about the term lust. They'll say, well, can't I lust after, I can lust after my wife. Like, it's impossible for a man to lust after his wife. You know why? Because lust is a sin. Lust is desiring something that doesn't belong to you. Whether that's someone else's wife, that's a house, that's money. If you have a wife, you can't lust after your wife because she's yours. You could be a attracted to your wife, you can desire your wife, but that's not lust. You, you get what I'm saying? Lust is desiring something that doesn't belong to you. And that's what the church fathers here are warning about. They're warning about how we are to present ourselves in the public and how we are to uh, cover ourselves in that way. Now, here's another quote from Clement. Let married women be fully clothed by garments on the outside and by modesty on the inside. And then uh, one more. Clement says, I would counsel the married men never to kiss their wives in the presence of their domestic servants. It's interesting how they had that view because they understood that if you're doing things with your spouse in public, you're doing something that's not necessarily decent. 
you know, those things are to be done more or less in, in private. And so th that's one thing that I've tried to say before about others is when you come to the church meeting, you're not on a date, right? Uh, I, I, it's my personal belief that when you come to the worship of God, husbands and wives having their arms around each other, uh, kissing each other during the fellowship, I, I don't think that's proper. Uh, there should be a proper fear of God when we come together and a proper respect and understanding a balance in our lives. We have to have a balance in the way that we do things. When we come to the church service, it's not dating time. It's time to worship God. You know, husband and wife time, that's a different time. That's not during the church meeting. And, uh, but the other thing here is, too, when we consider this, this issue of modesty, this is a problem that we, uh, an issue that we as Christians really need to get a grasp on and really hold to strongly. Because in our day, at least in my generation, it's becoming more common for people to think they can be Christians and dress immodestly. Some weeks ago, I saw some pictures that were on uh, social media. So this is public, so I can talk about this. Some people who used to be here in this church, others who I, who I know, pictures of themselves out in a public event, dressed very modestly. And it stuns me to think that you can have Christian men who think it's okay for their wives to actually dress that way before others. You have to ask the question, okay, as professing Christians, how many men out here at this, this, this event, Buggies and Blues, how many men out there lusted after your wives, stared at them? Uh, how many men did your wives cause to sin by displaying themselves in that way? And if you, if, you're, if you speak about these things, a lot of times people think you're a legalist. But the actual problem is, is that so many Christians today are, or professing Christians are antinomian. They think, no law. We're saved by grace. That's it. We can just dress however we want. We can do whatever we want. No, that's, that's not right. But yes, Howard? Say it all 
sinful. You know, you want to draw attention to yourself. Yeah. You might, you know, some will say maybe that's not, but I have trouble understanding how that thought at least does not drop into their mind while they're dressing like that and about to go out. Why would you dress so provocative? Unless you draw attention to yourself and yeah. your body. Yeah. And even for, for young men to think about as, as we have young uh, children and they're growing up in the church and things, you, 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 you get the whole thing when you marry somebody. And here, here's what I, I remember uh, my wife has a business uh, in the house there, the uh, Sunrise Mod is closed. And, you know, so we have pictures of the dresses and uh, some, some of the ladies uh, have taken pictures. And, uh, and then you get some comments on the platforms here on it. I remember one of the comments was basically, oh, they're probably dressed that way because to cover the bruises that they have from their fundamentalist Christian husbands against them, stuff like that. And, you know, it, it's interesting how the world sees it that way. But when you ask these same men, okay, so the, the wife that you have, who shows herself off to everybody. So you look at their relationship, it's usually a mess. There's no order. Uh, you know, if, if you look, put it this way, if you have a woman who dresses immodestly in front of everybody, she's not going to be a woman who submits to her husband. Plain and simple. She's not going to be a woman who fears God. And so, you know, and that's important for people when they think of a potential wife, you know, what are they getting? Is that going to be someone who's pure, who's just, you know, for them? And that's the same for a woman as far as a man. What kind of character does he want in a woman? All these things are really important. And so since you have all these things filtering into the churches today, even churches like ours, it's, it's really important for us all to uh, consider. Now, let me give you a quote from Tertullian. Salvation consists in the exhibition principally of modesty. I say this not only for of women, but likewise of men. For we are all the temple of God. So just show it. Not just for women, but for the men as well. And uh, I remember Mike told me a story a little over a month ago about how uh, he made a good decision with his family. It was him and Wendy and another couple from years ago. And it was, they were invited to go to the pool outside or whatever, and take the kids there or whatever, and the kids were younger. And one of the men said, said to Mike, you, you women can go out, men won't because we have a life problem. Uh, but Mike and Wendy ended up canceling that, and they decided that they're not going to go. Because it's not just men, it's women too. And so that's something that Tertullian even warns about here as well. Now, another quote from Tertullian. I know not whether he allows impunity to him who has been the cause of perdition to some other person. For that other person perishes as soon as he has felt lust after your beauty and has mentally already committed the deed that his lust points to. And you have been made the sword that destroys him, so that although you are free from the actual crime, you are not free from the infamy attaching to it. So again shows, again, you have the one who sins, who lusts, and then you have the one who causes that lust also. And then, uh, let me give one more from Tertullian. And this one I have here again. I wanted to give this quote because, again, the church fathers weren't perfect, always perfect. And at times you could say, because their view 
wasn't exactly, because of their lack of knowledge sometimes of the Old Testament, and because of the neo-Platonist influence, sometimes they could go a little overboard with some of these things. Remember we talked about the monastic movement and the way that women were viewed as things like that. So it's explaining here, let a holy woman, if naturally beautiful, give no one such a great occasion for carnal lust. Certainly, if even she is beautiful, she should not show off her beauty, but should rather obscure it. Now, again, I would take a little bit of issue with that. Again, we've been talking about this, modesty. But to act as if a woman should make herself, you know, not look good at all, I, I don't necessarily agree with I don't agree with that at all. When I read through the Old Testament, you don't see that any. In fact, the Old Testament, uh, we just went, we just saw it in our family prayer last time. It talks about David, he was a handsome, ruddy individual. It talks about Saul that way. It talks about women. And it talks about them very positively. It talks about the bride at, at the wedding and so forth. And she, that's like the moment where she's supposed to look her nicest. It doesn't say, let the bride obscure the beauty or something like that. So sometimes, again, because of the neo-Platonist influence, some of these church fathers went a little bit too far. So I just wanted to, to mention that as well. Finally, last quote. This is from Cyprian. But self-control and modesty do not consist only in purity of the flesh, but also in seemliness and in modesty of dress. And I go on. So there again, this comes back to what we talked about with that. So just to bring this all in, the church fathers, that what we have, what they taught in this belief in public, both men and women were to cover their bodies. Uh, that was not to be revealed to others. If you didn't, you would cause others to sin, and you would be guilty of sin yourself. Uh, but at times, they could have went a little bit overboard and acting as if it was a sin for people to look the way that God actually designed them to look for certain reasons, and in those areas they could have gone a little too far. Any questions or comments about this subject for me? short shorts for men has become common again. 
funny to see how men are doing that, but you know, 20 years ago, we would have thought, look at those guys are goofy. You know, we call them geeks or whatever. So people really can be persuaded uh, by, by those things instead of being persuaded by scripture. And so this isn't just an issue again for women, it's an issue for men as well. And uh, sometimes men will think, I mentioned it's a story of the night before you came in. Men will think it's just a woman thing. No, it's not just a woman thing, it's a man thing. everywhere. 
define what you're gonna do, you know, any heresy you want, anything like that. And I, you know, the other thing too, even when we're raising our young people, I think it's important to instill into them, and then even for people who are married, you think about the protective nature. If you have a husband or if you have a wife, that person is yours, right? That person is yours, so you should cherish that. Why would you give that to anybody else? Right. You see, it, it's it's like you're ruining what's been given to you. You understand? So, um, it's just it, it's unreal. And you know what? I really think it does is I think it stifles or kills the relationship that the good relationship that a husband and wife can have when they're showing each other off to everybody else. Because then it's not just them; it includes everybody else. So, anyway, those are just some more principles there. Let's move on to the next subject then. Let's look at the subject then of the head coverings. Just, just, just a little bit here. I know we talked about this many times already, so I'm not going to spend so much time. But we're studying history here. So I want to again look at what did they say. And I know not everybody agrees on this subject, but again, let's just, and I don't agree with everything the church fathers said on this subject, but again, just again, studying the history. So let's look at some of the, the quotes from here as well. And uh before I give some quotes, I want to see why this is important for a church like ours just to consider. There was something called the Gen 2 survey some years ago. It was an interesting survey done by Christians, and they looked at a whole load of different subjects. But really they were examining millennials who were raised in professing Christian homes that were homeschooled. And where did they... You know, where did they all go? So they examined, like, in the education, how many of them would, how many of them are still professing Christians today? How many of them would homeschool their kids again? Things like that. But they also looked at just millennials in general who were in Christian homes. I don't know if it's whether they homeschooled or not, but they asked, did they apostatize from the faith or did they remain in the faith? And so they looked at so many different groups. And so they looked at millennials in different groups, and I don't want to misrepresent, but they look, for example, at Pentecostals. Pentecostals lost about 40% of their millennials to secularism. Uh, Lutherans, it was about the same. IFD lost about 50%. So we're all in the negative, the negative, the negative when it comes to um, and a lot of those. Anabaptists was quite a bit less. It was yeah, negative 15 so it wasn't as much as some of these others, which I can understand a lot of their groups are pretty tight-knit and so forth. The only ones that were in the positive was Reformed Presbyterian and Reformed Baptist was up 50% millennials. And then Anglican was up about 14%. It might have been non-denominational, which is quite a range there, about like 4% or something like that. So it's interesting, but when they tried to ask what was the reason for these, what were some of the reasons for these for them gaining compared to these others losing? is a big factor was the accountability factor and the discipleship factor. The churches that gain tend to disciple more and tend to hold people accountable more. And they saw that that was maybe a big factor. I think there's probably a lot more factors than that too, but that was one of them. So it's interesting, and of course, athe of course atheism and agnosticism was way up with the millennials as well. Now, it's interesting because a lot of these churches that gain we would be quite familiar with. And what's interesting is when you think of Anglican, Reformed Baptist, Reformed Presbyterian, usually those are churches that do have an interest in church history. Whereas a lot of these other ones I mentioned that lost don't have usually as much of an interest in that. 
Anabaptists, maybe the other ones don't. They don't really talk about it much. So when you're dealing with a head covering subject, maybe with someone who doesn't agree with you on the issue, they might be open to the history behind it. Um, and so because a lot of times they do want to know what did the historic church teach about it. So I'll just give you some quotations from some of the church fathers that we studied concerning this. And uh, if you're ever talking to a Reformed Baptist or Reformed Presbyterian, and you ask them, do you know what the reformers, let's say, for example, or the church fathers taught about it, they probably don't. But they, they might be open because they do care about history. And that can really open up their eyes a little bit like, hmm, I didn't know that. Because if you don't if you don't go that route with them and, and discuss that, they might think, well, you believe what I do doctrinally, but you're kind of a legalist on some things. You know what I mean? But if you actually actually this is what historic believers taught as well. They might be more open to that. So let's first begin with Irenaeus. Again, he's second century, so quite early. He quotes 1 Corinthians 11.10 in his work against heresies in this way. A woman ought to have a veil upon her head because of the angels. Now, it's interesting because the, the translation that he gives of it, uh, like we have it in uh, the King James, I believe, uh, power on the head. Uh, he says the veil, which shows that he didn't believe it was just a woman's hair, but an actual veil as well. So that's Irenaeus. Now, Tertullian... I'm going to just kind of read here right from uh, the book I wrote. In his famous work on the veiling of virgins, Tertullian argues the point that Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 11 requires not only married women to be covered with the veil, but all women, whether married or unmarried. So there were some in his day that were saying, in the churches, only the married women cover their heads. The, the other ones don't have to. But he's arguing, no, all who are women ought to do so. This work by Tertullian was written approximately 150 years after Paul wrote to the Corinthians. According to Tertullian, the believers at Corinth understood Paul to be teaching that all women in the congregation were to be covered, and that the church in Corinth continued in this practice even to his own day. Now listen to what he wrote. So too did the Corinthians themselves understand it. In fact, at this day, the Corinthians do veil their virgins, what the apostles taught, their disciples approved. And then he says this was the practice also in other locations. He says this, Throughout Greece and certain of its barbaric provinces, the majority of churches keep their virgins covered. There are places too beneath this African sky where this practice obtains. So he's saying this is what the Corinthians believe, this is what the Corinthians still practice, this is what the churches in all these other regions are practicing as well. Tertullian complained that some women, though, who were covering their heads weren't covering them completely, just a little bit part, and he complains about it. For some with their turbans and woolen bands do not veil their head, but bind it up, protected indeed in front, but where the head properly lies, bare. Others are, to a certain extent, covered over the region of the brain with linen coifs and small dimensions, I suppose for fear of pressing the head and not reaching quite to the ears. If they are so weak in their hearing as not to be able to hear through a covering, I pity them. So in other words, if they don't want to cover their ears, he said, you know, I understand because they can't hear that way. So let them know that the whole head constitutes the woman. Its limits and boundaries reach as far as the place where the robe begins. The region of the veil is coextensive with the space covered by the hair when unbound in order that the next two may be encircled. For it is they which must be subjected for the sake of which power ought to be had on the head. The veil is their yoke. Arabia's heathen females will be your judges, 
who cover not only the head but the face also, so entirely that they are content with one eye free to enjoy rather half of the light than the prostitute, prostitute the entire face. Now, I think Tertullian, it's interesting, he brings up a legitimate concern. I've talked to some friends that have loved this, and I've asked, you know, you don't want to debate this so much, it can be kind of impractical. I just ask, why sometimes do they, you know, some women they just kind of cover it here? And they said, well, basically, it's just a symbol and so forth. You just kind of, you know, leave it at that. But he's saying, look, he thinks more should be covered. Uh, but again, sometimes the church fathers got into the issue of modesty in this area, as if head covering, the head covering ordinance in 1 Corinthians 11 was a modesty issue, and that's really not what's being dealt with in 1 Corinthians 11 by Paul. It was a symbol. That's what the covering was. It was a symbol of something. And that's why the man was uncovered. This had nothing to do with modesty. It was the issue of uh, symbolism. Okay, Clement of Alexandria, and I talked about this before with him, he believed not only that a woman's head was to be covered, but also the face. And this reflects the stricter customs about women's dress, which prevailed in the East. These customs also prevailed in Alexandria, Egypt, where Clement resided. Now remember, when we're looking at history here, we're reminding the church fathers weren't always perfect. And so, but while they held to, yes, the woman was to cover her head, that's what 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about, at times they could stretch it a little too far. But let's listen here. Woman and man are to go to church decently attired, with natural step, embracing silence, possessing unfeigned love, pure in body, pure in heart, fit to pray to God. Let the woman observe this further. Let her be entirely covered, unless she happen to be at home. For that style of dress is great and protects from being gazed at. And she will never fall who puts before her eyes modesty and her shawl. Nor will she invite another to fall into sin by uncovering her face. For this is the wish of the word, since it is becoming for her to pray, veil. So, it talks about First Corinthians 11 praying, uncovered or covered. So he understood that again to be the veil. But again, he goes so far as to think this is a, a, a modesty issue. And again, that's not exactly what Paul is saying. Hippolytus, in his instructions, and, uh, said this, Let all the women have their heads covered with a cloth. Now, that's, uh, Hippolytus was late 2nd century Jerome, concerning Christian women in Egypt and Syria, he says that they go about with heads uncovered in defiance of the apostles' command, for they wear a close-fitting cap and a veil. So, again, he, he thought that, look, if, if you're going about uncovered, you're, you're going against the teaching of the scripture. And finally, the last one, Augustine, it is not becoming even in married women to uncover their hair since the apostle commands women to keep their heads covered. So again, that's what Augustine said. Just so you know, there's a book, uh, a new book that I saw, Head Covering Throughout Christian History. I think you can buy it online for 99 cents what I saw, but it's interesting because I have these quotes in this little book that I wrote, but I think this goes into much more detail. I think it has about 50 uh, pastors, preachers, scholars throughout history from the church fathers and onward. So if you're ever interested, there's a, a thorough, I think it's, from what I know, it's the most Thorough work that's ever been done on church history and head coverage. John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, they're, they're all in there as well. So just want to mention that. But again, just what the church fathers have taught about these issues. Finally, we have a few more minutes. Any questions or comments before we move on? Okay. 
Let's talk then about the teaching of the church fathers on education. Now, again, a lot of these things have creeped down already, but again, in our study of history, we look at what the church fathers taught. I think it's important to be reminded, what did they say? How does that compare to what our churches are saying now? And why is it important in our current situation? Now, it's interesting because in our day, at least it's been the stand of our church that Children, when they're raised in a Christian home, should get a Christian education. Their education should be one that is a biblical worldview. And what's interesting is, when you look at the Gen 2 survey, it looks at those who were raised in professing Christian homes, who homeschooled their children, who sent their children to Christian schools, or who sent their children to public schools, and what happened. When you look at the apostasy percentage, those who as adults turned away from the faith, 34% of those in public schools uh, rejected the Christian faith as adults. 28% from Christian schools, and 14%, I believe, out of homeschools. So you do see a difference. In fact, it was double that were in Christian schools that apostatized from those that were homeschooled over double those who were in public school than those who were in school. That's a big difference. And so, uh, while we're not to just be pragmatic, we're to look at Scripture and ask what would God have us to do, you do see some results. And again, if you raise your children in the faith, that's not a guarantee they're going to come to faith in Christ, but God does use means, right? And so, we, we do see this. This is an important issue. We have to look back, though, again, what are the principles of Scripture? And in our day, when you have public schools who basically, when you do the research, will tell you that their education is not based on the fear of God, the Christian who sees, well, I can homeschool them, or I can have different options, how can anyone send their children to an institution that's going to indoctrinate them into an anti-Christ, unbiblical worldview? It makes absolutely no sense. And so we have no problem saying in our church that if you send your children to be indoctrinated that way, you're in sin, plain and simple. And I think we have this mindset that, okay, the public school is here. It's always there for us. But if we have other options, we're going to do those other options. But if we can't do those, we have to go back to the public school. It's like, the public school just must be there. No, it doesn't have to be there. Just ignore it. <laughs> it's not even an option. I mean, it's the best way we can put it. And I think that as Christians, if something happens, like if parents die, if they get into a car accident or something, and the kids are left, it's ours. And if, if we can, somehow, some way, uh, we want to protect them and make sure they can be educated in a biblical worldview. Let's say the wife, something happens to someone's wife and she dies, and the man working full time hours and stuff. Christians should try to move in and help in that situation. You don't want to throw their kids to the wolves. And so, all these things are so important for us to. Let's read some of the quotes. This is from the Didache. Again, we're talking about AD 100. So listen to what was said. Again, this is a manual for new converts. You shall not withhold your hand from your son or your daughter, but from their youth you shall teach them the fear of God. Okay, now, if you walk into a public school and ask them, is your education based upon the fear of God? They'll probably laugh at you and say, no. In fact, some of them will say, that's dangerous. But 
Is that how Christians ever raise their kids? Put them there. Six hours a day, how many, five days a week, how many days is that out of the year? That's what they're indoctrinating and constantly. Okay, Clement of Rome, let our children receive the instruction that is in Christ. Ignatius, so again, Ignatius, early second century. Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and teach them the holy scriptures and also trades that they may not indulge in idleness. Now the scripture says, a righteous father educates his children well, his heart shall rejoice in a wise son. So this is really important because public schools, not only do they teach unbiblical worldviews, but it's a, for the most part, the public school is a waste of time. Yeah. I mean, all those hours in the classroom, if you even learn anything these days, the education level is so low. But all those hours just in book work, and you're not learning anything practical, how to apply that work in your life, all the way until you're about 18 years old, is a horrific waste of time. And it leads to laziness, uh, just in so many different areas. Let me just give you one example. There's a family that I know of. I don't know them very well, but I ran into them in, in Walmart. And I remember the, the boy, when he was young, he's older now, probably about 17 years old or so. And all summer long, what they basically do is travel and he plays in basketball camps all summer long. I mean, think about it. Is that, you do that until you're 18 and you're done. And so when you look back on your teen years, you weren't learning how to work. You weren't learning responsibility. You were playing games the whole time. And I, I, like, I, I like basketball. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with playing the sport. I enjoy the sport. But growing up, playing basketball, playing video games, playing football, and you're now learning how to work or be responsible, that's not a good thing. And really what it does is it teaches young men how to be lazy. They don't want to do anything unless it's games. And so you think about that, that's not good at all. Polycarp, mothers were to teach their children with instruction that leads to the fear of God. And then finally, the epistle of Barnabas, you must not withhold your hand from your son or daughter, but from their youth you shall teach them the fear of God. Let me give you one last one. This is from the Didascula Apostolorum. It was a Syri uh, Syrian church manual uh, dated 275 AD. It contains a whole chapter on raising children from early Syrian church leaders and contains these words. Teach your sons handicrafts which are suitable and helpful to the fear of God, lest by means of idleness they serve voluptuousness. For not being educated by their parents, they wickedly do works like the heathen. Do not give them the power of rising against you, their parents, and let them do nothing without your advice, that they go not with those of their age to assemble and amuse themselves, because thus they learn vanity and are laid hold by harlotry and fall. Should this happen without their parents, they and their parents will be themselves guilty in the judgment before God. So Mike makes this point a lot. In scripture, you never see young people just by themselves. They're with their parents, they're with someone who's older, and so that they can be influenced by those older ones. When oftentimes young people are just with each other, they're gonna get into trouble. What's the one time in scripture we see young people together? When they were devoured by the bears, mocking God's prophet. It's just not a healthy thing at all. And this is important 
Because again, I mentioned this before, when you consider our own times, it's not like it was 20 years ago. Let's say you send your child to a Christian school. A lot of times, kids at that school, their parents might not have the same standards that you have. And their kids might have an iPhone. And they might show your kids what's on that iPhone. And when you look at the percent of what's the age when they first view things they ought not see, usually at about 13 or 14 years of age. A whole different game now. Even at professing Christian schools without high standards. There are some, yes, that do. I'm not saying all Christian schools. There are some. But it's very rare. It's a whole different game now. So these things we need to really consider. Because some might say, oh, it's okay. I send them to the Christian school. It's, it's not like it used to be. So we need to consider that. Let me just, one last thing, and then we'll be done. Keep far from them all the books of the heathen. For what hast thou to do with foreign words or with false laws or prophecies, which also easily cause young people to wander from the faith? What then is wanting to thee in the word of God that thou throwest thyself upon these myths of the heathen? If thou wishest to read tales of the fathers, thou hast the book of kings. For of wise men and philosophers thou hast the prophets, amongst whom thou wilt find more wisdom in scripture than amongst the wise men and the philosophers, because they are the words of God, of one only wise God. If thou desirest songs, thou hast the Psalms of David. In other words, scripture has everything we need. And if you're educating your children, why give them heathen books to learn from? In other words, give them a solid biblical worldview. I don't think you only have to use scripture. You can use other books, obviously, that are good books, that are of a biblical worldview, so you can give them that. So you can bend that branch, so to speak, like Matthew Andrew said, while it is tender, before it is too late. And so it's, it's really, really important. So when we consider the kind of education we give our children, uh, what books are we giving them? This was, um, remember, I think Wendy brought this up a long time ago. But, you know, some homeschool families, they give their kids you know, Harry Potter reads and stuff like that. There's just no business for any of that stuff. Give them a solid biblical worldview. And then maybe when they're young adults, once they're grounded in those things and knowledgeable of those things, you can examine false worldviews and refute them. And they can do that because you've already taught them a biblical, solid worldview, and then you can teach them, now these are false worldviews, and here's why. So just some important things. But here's quotations. I know I'm making a lot of application today. This is supposed to be history time. But anyway, I'm giving you these quotes from those who went before us concerning today modesty, education, and the, the head covering issue, just so that you can see what those who've gone before us said. Any last questions or comments before we go? Yes, Mike.
you know, to get your homework done. So you won't always have to bring it home to do it. You know, and you know, then the rule of everything else, but it's it's nothing like that now. It's you know, even if it, it at least around here, when, when we talk about evolution, it was stressed. I remember the word hypothesis was used. It was still called a hypothesis back then. Some people wanted to theory, some people believe this. It's there, there's no way to compare. That's why you know in preparation they should do everything they can. And if they want to, I agree, the church is a family should help those out there struggling in that. And Doing it, 